This is going to sound pretty out there, but hear me out. When I was in my final year in uni, I lived in a house with three other male students. Uh, so you can imagine that our shared home wasn't exactly the most expertly clean and tidy place. We didn't have any pets, the mice didn't count, uh, but there was a neighborhood cat who hung about and meowed loudly at us because one of the guys in the house had fed it fish once quite a while ago. Living in such circumstances can cause some pretty harebrained schemes to be hatched. So naturally, I thought we should have a real pet. But not like a dog or a cat or a hamster. No. One day, several weeks before this plan hatched, we were sitting in the living room with not much else to do and decided to watch a documentary that was on TV. It was a nature documentary following a family of beavers with never-before-seen footage of beavers' activities at night. We watched as they waddled cutely on land to go into the forest and find the perfect tree to fell and eat and then return to the water and become graceful swimmers diving under the water to build their home which doubled as a dam. I had obviously studied beavers in school and knew a bit about them, but one thing I had never heard before, before we watched this documentary, was the way that they squeak at each other. And it is the cutest thing you've ever heard. You should go find a video of beavers and the noises they make because they are super cute. So after we watched this documentary, we fell in love with the wee creatures. And we decided that we should get one as a pet. After all, they are rodents, just like a hamster or a guinea pig. We started Googling things like, can you keep a beaver as a pet? And discovered that, for one thing, in Missouri, the state I was living in, it wasn't actually illegal. Good start. Secondly, we found out that at least one or two people on the internet had done this and could recommend them as pets. They are cute and cuddly and affectionate, they said. Another tick in the pro column. One tick for the con column, however, was that same person who described them as cute and cuddly and affectionate, also did say that they came home once to find their couch made into a dam in the living room. So, of course, um, another obstacle in this whole process was actually finding a beaver. Uh, they didn't really have them up for adoption at the local pets at home. I spoke to an elder at my church who knew some hunter-type people, and he pointed me to um, the Missouri Bureau of Wildlife, and I emailed them to say that we would like a beaver, and if anyone ever needed to rehome one or relocate a beaver from the wild, that we would be interested in taking it. Um, surprisingly, that came to nothing. We got as far as having plans to even dig a big hole in our front garden and filling it with water in order to let the beaver have somewhere to swim around. Now you'll be shocked to know that we never actually got our pet beaver. But in the process, I learned a lot about them. And one of the facts about them that has stuck with me for a lot of these years is according to National Geographic, other than human beings, no animal does more to shape its environment. Most animals find a balance within their context and live alongside the environment. Some are especially adapted for this. 
And this is also why ecosystems can be pretty fragile. And when you upset the balance, it doesn't just affect one thing, but can affect multiple species of plants and animals because they live together. But like humans, beavers create, they engineer, they block rivers to create ponds, which affects fish and deer and uh, different things like that. They chop down trees and transport them from one place to another. It really is rather extraordinary. You see, as humans, we like to create order out of wilderness. We like to take our environments and superimpose a sense of order and organization on it like beavers do. And I think in many ways this um, desire to create and engineer is a God-given thing that we have within us to, to want to do these things. But we are often busy little beavers creating tidiness out of untidiness. We create rules out of lawlessness and we add structure to things that are free-flowing. And sometimes we take this too far. One of the areas of our lives as human beings that we have worked the hardest to organize, structure, and systematize is in religion. The human experience of God is really, though, often far untidier than it is clear-cut. Rules and structure make us feel safe and they make us feel in control. When it comes to church and theology, we do this all the time. Although these days we are trying more and more to recognize that theology is often untidier than we would like, we still crave order. Even if in the wider context we, we widen the net just a little bit. But the early church was anything but tidy, and the way they experienced God working was anything but by the book. One of the aspects of theology, even closer down where we experience God, that we have tried our best to systematize and organize, is uh, that is make into an organized structure, is the process that we have called conversion. There is a, a standard order of operations for conversion that, that we tend to um, go by that goes a bit like this. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. I don't know if you've ever heard those five in a row exactly like that. Maybe you have. Then after these five, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like Peter says in Acts 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 38. He, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So receiving the Holy Spirit comes after baptism. Got it? At least that's what's presented as the correct order. And some examples of stories from the New Testament are used to demonstrate this, like the verse I just quoted. However, that way of thinking often far too conveniently ignores other stories from the New Testament in which that doesn't happen. Because again, things aren't as tidy as we often like them to be. Brian is going to read our text for us this morning. It comes from the book of Acts also, but Acts chapter 10. Brian. Good morning. The reading this morning is from Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. The Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who were listening to his message. 
The Jewish believers who had come from Joppa with Peter were amazed that God had poured out his gift of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in strange tongues and praising God's greatness. Peter spoke up. These people have received the Holy Spirit just as we also did. Can anyone then stop them from being baptized with water? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay with them for a few days. Amen. Thanks, Brian. There are two ways in which expectations are shattered in this story. The first way is one of the larger sort of meta-narratives of Acts, and that is that the Gentiles are given the same grace through Jesus that is also on offer to Jews. This idea is part of the larger thread of Acts and also forms a pretty sizable amount of Paul's theology in his letters. This widening of the scope of God's love and grace was revolutionary and also took a lot of getting used to. It was not just a simple idea for many to accept and go along with. Today, for the church, it isn't even a thought, really. We, we might talk about it a lot, but, but none of you have ever had to confront whether or not you are a Gentile or a Jew. Um, we, we do use it as a metaphor for inclusion, but the actual Jew-Gentile Jew debate is long settled. And part of why that is, simply put, is that the early church, after a while, hit a tipping point where it actually became predominantly Gentile. So of course it was no longer an issue when the Jewish Christians were no longer in the majority or the main decision makers. The second way that this story shatters expectations is in the way in which the gifts of the Holy Spirit were poured out on a, poured out on a group of people before they were formally accepted into the community. Like I said before, the sort of standard way we want the story to play out is that a group of non-Christians hear the gospel, go through the proper steps, that then they, then after they've gone through the right processes, then they can reap the benefits, reap the benefits. But it is the Holy Spirit in this story in Acts chapter 10 who actually subverts this. God doesn't play by our rules, you see. Peter does preach to these people. Uh, by the way, he only preaches to them because God appeared to him in a dream and told him to. But God doesn't wait for him or anyone else to say, okay, now you can be Christians. God simply acts. And that's the frustrating thing about God for anyone who is trying to control the rules and organize theology into neat categories and systems and orders. God simply does what God does. So when it comes to who is accepted by God and who is invited to the great banquet in heaven, God isn't waiting on us to decide who is welcome. God decides without us and invites everyone, whether we're ready for that or not. Instead of trying to be gatekeepers for the kingdom of heaven, what if we acted more like guests ourselves? We are not in charge. We are partygoers too. I used to really stress myself out over trying to know exactly who was in and who was out based on certain criteria of faith. I would search the Bible and try and find out everything I could so that I would be able to have the exactly right opinion about every theological issue and debate. 
I would have an opinion about everything, and there was a right and a wrong way to think about things. As time has passed, however, I've let go of so much of that way of thinking. I began to realize that, for one, I could never get it all right. I mean, how could I? And it started by recognizing, first of all, there was actually much more stress-free to just let God do the deciding. I didn't have to set myself up as the judge, jury, and executioner of the world. That's a stressful job. But also, the more I let the actual stories of Jesus in the early church be stories rather than a textbook, I began to see how God works outside of our rules and structures. God is the flood water that destroys the beaver dams of theology, if we are to um, stretch that analogy past its breaking point. Another thing that happened to me is I also began to see that the church and God and theology aren't things that need to be organized and controlled. They are things to be lived in and with and through. They become part of us and we part of them. We need to let go of our need for control and let God be God. And instead of trying to make systems out of stories, we should let verses like Acts 10, 43, just before our reading, be known in their fullness. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who has faith in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone. Not just the people we like. Not just people who volunteer a lot. Not just white people. Not just straight or cis people. Not just Westerners. Everyone. Whether we like it or not. And everyone doesn't get welcomed in after we decide to be okay with it. They have always been welcome. Everyone who has ever been rejected or kept out of church because they didn't fit the system isn't only saved once the people who rejected them feel bad and repent and decide to let them back in. God will leave the church with them because God's love is not bound by bricks and mortar or by the bigotry of human beings. Are you ready to stop building dams and try to control God and instead let the current of God's love take you on a journey? If you are, then you will find yourself swept off to new, amazing, and exciting places. These new places might also feel scary and dangerous at first. That's what giving up our need to control is about. The beauty of all of this is that it allows God to be much, much bigger. It doesn't diminish God's love by opening up. It makes it so much grander and wider. Let's take this journey together. We are, as a church and a wider society, moving into, for some, a scary and uncharted world. We can either be afraid of what's going to come next for the church, our church and the wider church, and then cling to the past comforts of what church was, or we can let the current take us to new, amazing places. It'll look different. It'll be difficult. But it certainly won't be boring. The early church dealt with this problem so much, they were not in control of where things were going. 
but they went along for the ride and ended up changing the whole world. We have such an exciting opportunity ahead of us. Come along for the ride with us. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the current that is your Holy Spirit taking us wherever you will lead us. Let us let go of control and quit trying to grasp for things that we think will give us power. Let us let you take us on the journey and find new and exciting ways to spread your love and your goodness in this world and bring your kingdom to everyone. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.